Yeah, as you can see, we are taking a look at wisdom literature in the Bible. We've been through some, some Proverbs, and this morning we come to our end at the look at a look at the book of Job, and our scripture reading is going to be on the screen here uh, from Job chapter 1 and a bit from Job chapter 42. Here we go. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes seize you. Therefore, I retract. I repent in dust and ashes. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him came before, came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house. They consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters, named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and grandsons, four generations, and Job died, an old man and full of days." So we've been tracing Job's journey, if you've been here, from the moment that he, through, through no fault of his own, despite being a man who feared God, an upright man of God, a pillar in his community, uh, the moment he was plunged into a nightmare of suffering. And we've seen Job wrestle with his friends and with his, his, his self and with his God over what it all means and how he should be handling it. And, and then last week, if you were here, we saw that, that God actually answered Job and we saw the surprising answer that God gave. But we should ask now, what, what happened to our man Job in the end? We've seen him go through quite a bit. Uh, how does the story finish? And at the same time, and maybe even more importantly, what does it mean for us as a church? Hmm? This morning, I'm going to do something a bit different. I want to use the ending of the book of Job more as a springboard for some encouragement for you as a person and for some vision for us as a church. So just want to tell some stories here, exhort you in a few ways, and take a little look ahead. Can we do that? Yeah. So what do we... Thank you, Galen. All right. What do, what do we learn from Job in the end? And if you're walking in the day, what are we all about? All right. Let's take a look here. Number one, we're going to see it's never all for nothing. We value worship. Number two, it's always all for something value community. So number three, let's be a church with a voice. We have a mission. Here we go. Number one, it's never all for nothing. About a hundred years ago, the Philadelphia church in Stockholm, Sweden, sent two missionary couples to the Congo. The first was David and Savea Flood, and along with Joel and Bertha Erickson, they macheted their way through the jungle to establish a mission and a church in the Congo. And during their, their first year there, they didn't see a single person come to know Jesus. The village was actually resistant to the gospel. 
because they were afraid of offending local tribal gods. But that didn't keep Svea from sharing Jesus' love with a five-year-old boy who delivered fresh eggs to her back door every day. And Svea became pregnant not long after being there, but she ended up being bedridden much of her pregnancy with malaria. She gave birth to a baby girl named Ina, but Svea died only 17 days after giving birth. Her husband David made a casket, buried his 27-year-old, uh, 27-year-old wife on the mountainside overlooking the village. He was so broken by grief and bitterness, he couldn't bear to look at his daughter anymore. And he gave her away to the other couple, to the Ericsons, and he moved back to Sweden where he spent the next 50 years of his life as an alcoholic cursing God's name. And the Ericsons raised little Lina until she was a toddler, until both of them died within three days of each other after being poisoned by the villagers. Ina was then given to an American missionary couple who nicknamed her Aggie, and they eventually returned to the States, and they passed her to church in North Dakota. After high school, Aggie went to college, and she met a man by the name of Dewey Hurst, and they got married and had a family, and they, were, they pastored for many years until her, uh, Dewey became a president, the president of a famous Bible college. And then for their 25th wedding anniversary, the Bible college gave them a special gift. It was a trip to Sweden to see if Svea, excuse me, if Ina could find, Aggie could find, her long-lost biological father who had abandoned her 50 years before. And for five days, when they were there, they searched Stockholm without a trace. And then on the last day before their departure, they got a tip that led them to a rundown old apartment building where Aggie found her father dying of liver failure. When they found him, Aggie's words were, Papa, it's Ina. And he broke and he said, I never meant to give you away. And she replied and said, it's all right, Papa. God took care of me. That old apartment building they embraced, a 50-year curse of bitterness was broken. They reconciled, and David Flood was reconciled with God that day. Aggie and Dewey went back home the next day, and when they landed, they received word that her father, David, had actually died while they were in flight. Now, here's the amazing part, actually. Five years later, the Hearst attended a world missions conference in London, England. There were 10,000 delegates there, and the speaker of the opening night was a man named Ruagita Indagora, the leader of the Pentecostal church in Zaire. And what captured Aggie's attention was that Ruagita was from the same region where her parents had been missionaries half a century before. And after he spoke, she found him and spoke to him through an interpreter. And she asked if he knew of the village where she had grown up and where she, had, or excuse me, where she was born. And Rugita told her that he had grown up in that same village. She then asked if he knew of missionaries with the last name of Flood. And he said, every day as a young boy, I would go to Savea Flood's back door with a basket of eggs, and she would tell me about Jesus. I don't know if she had a single convert in all of Africa besides me. And then he added, shortly after I accepted Christ, Savea died, and her husband left. She had a baby girl named Ina, and I've always wondered what happened to her. When Aggie revealed that she was Ina, they both began to weep and embraced like long-lost siblings. Then Ruagita said, Just a few months ago, I placed flowers on your mother's grave. Your mother is the most famous person in our village's history. On behalf of the hundreds of churches and hundreds of thousands of Christians that are in Zaire now, thank you for letting your mother die that so many of us could live. 
And a few years later, Aggie visited the village where her mother uh, had died, where she had been born. She found her mother's grave, and someone actually took a picture of that moment, and here she is praying at her mother's graveside. And later that day, she attended a church service where the pastor read from Psalm 126.5, which said, Those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. I love that because it's just true, isn't it? So let me tell you something today. That today, wherever you are, whatever you're carrying, whatever you're going through, whatever you feel that you've lost, whatever pressure that you're bearing today that feels like it's too much to take, let me tell you something that Aggie discovered. It's never all for nothing. Never all for nothing. Failure is never final in God's kingdom. God always gets the last word. After all, didn't he hear in Job? hmm? Didn't God have the last word? Look at verse 10. The Lord, what? Restored the fortunes of Job. The Lord increased all that Job had. The Lord blessed the latter days more than his beginning. You think, well, how? How could God do this in Job's life? What, What made space for that? And here's the answer. It was because Job... Job was a worshiper. He was a worshiper. Like Aggie Flood. I mean, look at his very first words in the book. It says he fell to the ground when disaster came on him. And what did he do? He worshiped. He said, naked I came, naked I'll return. The Lord gave, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The first words of Job. Here are the last words of Job. He said, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Look at verse 5. I've heard of you. Now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract. Repent in dust and ashes. Well, can you see that, that front to back, right? Start to finish. Uh, beginning to end. Job was a worshiper. And God, here, here's the point. God honored Job's worship. And he will honor yours as well. When, when you worship, right? When you cling to God in your trial, you're making space for him to have the last word in your situation. It's never all for nothing. See, when the final chapter, oh, what it shows you is that Job's worship was never all for nothing. God saw, he honored And he rewarded every bit of it. You say, well, I kind of like that, Morgan. But, you know, it also makes me kind of nervous. You know, that that, the talk about serving God for rewards, right? It's kind of, I kind of like it, but it kind of makes me nervous. Well, listen, listen. On one hand, the true worshiper, the true Christ follower, you know you don't seek or serve God for a reward. Because the true worshiper, like Job, you know that God himself is a reward. And yet, yet over and throughout the Bible, God speaks openly, like he does here, of rewarding his people for what they've done and what they've endured. Do you know why he does this? Here's why. Because God is just. He is just, and it is right and just to honor what's honorable. I mean, Paul himself, right? The apostle Paul in the New Testament said, there is a what? A crown, a reward laid up for me that who? The righteous judge will give me one day. It's just to honor. It's right to reward. And that's why God does it here. See, this, this final scene in Job, I love it. It's like, it's like his awards platform. Can you see? This is the moment where Job wins the gold medal, where he takes the, the podium, the anthem is played, the audience is cheered, and he sees the reward of all his labor, all his suffering. And I don't know about you, but I am a sucker for those moments. 
on TV, right? Maybe it's the, the wannabe, leftover, broke-down athlete in me, right? But when I watch the field, uh, the team run onto the field and, and celebrate, or when I watch the Olympian take the stand and he or she cries, man, I don't know about you, but I don't cry for a whole lot. But I may or may not get misty there. And you probably do too. Do you know why? Oh, here's why. Because you're supposed to. You were made for that moment. Because, see, as a Christian, one day that moment will happen to you. You were made for eternity. One day you'll be there. You'll stand before your king. Hear the words. Well done, good and faithful servant. As the anthem of heaven is played around you, the saints cheer your homecoming. You'll see it was never all for nothing. But here's where it gets even better for us. See, athletes, Olympians, they compete, don't they, to receive a crown that what? That perishes, it rusts, it tarnishes, and then they can lose it. Oh, but for the child of God, for everyone who labors and worships and, yes, suffers in God's plan of redemption, there is a podium and an anthem and a crown that the king himself will give you one day. Never all for nothing, God gets the last word. He did with Savea Flood. He did with Job. He will with you. And he will with his church. And for those of you who are new, let me tell you, you're sitting today with a group of people who believe that about you and about this church. We, we have a story of redemption and Mosaic. It's all about how good God is, how faithful he is, how much he loves his church. And how much he is, dare I say it, but I will, proud of us and proud of you and proud to be seen with you. We are his children. It's never all for nothing, friends. So let's worship in the middle of it because when we do, we're just rehearsing for that moment one day. See? Number two, it's not, not just never all for nothing. Number two, it's always all for something we value, community. A man by the name of Professor Joshua Chamberlain grew up thinking about becoming a minister in the 1800s, but instead he became, again, a professor. Uh, he taught rhetoric. He studied theology. He was no soldier, but duty called, and he enlisted in the Union Army when the Civil War broke out. However, he, he climbed the ranks to become a colonel, and one day, Professor, now Colonel Chamberlain, came face to face with his destiny. July 2nd, 1863, Chamberlain and 300 soldiers were all that stood between a Confederate victory and a Union defeat. Two Confederate reg regiments charged and charged again and charged again five times, but Chamberlain and his men held their ground, and by the last charge, he had only 80 men left. And he himself was knocked to the ground, but survived miraculously when the bullet hit his belt buckle. When he was informed there were no reinforcements to come and his men were down to one round of ammunition per soldier, he knew he had to do something. His lookout told him the Confederates were forming for a final charge to finish them off. So the logical thing to do would be to surrender, try to save his skin. But he did just the opposite and he made a decision that single-handedly changed the war. Save the Union. In full view of the enemy, he climbed up onto the barricade that separated them, yelled, charge. And all his men started running at the enemy, which vastly outnumbered them. They caught the Confederates off guard and in what ranks as one of the most improbable military victories ever. 80 Union soldiers captured 4,000 Confederates in five minutes flat. 
Now, historians believe if Chamberlain hadn't charged, the Confederates would have gained the high ground, and if they had, the South, not the North, would have won what is known as the Battle of Gettysburg, which turned the tide of the war. And Chamberlain, who was a committed Christian and a deep and brilliant thinker, you should read his speeches all over the internet, he was given the Medal of Honor, and he said this later. He said, quote, I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. I knew I may die, but I also knew that I would not die with a bullet in my back. Now, you can pardon me, excuse me, pardon, the overly masculine story a bit here. And metaphor, and hear what he's saying. He had 80 men versus 4,000. He could have thought, what difference does my choice make here, right? I mean, why not give up when the odds are against me? Oh, but he didn't. He didn't. He knew because Joshua Chamberlain had a good grasp of deep theology that in the eyes of God, little things are big things. Little choices are big choices. His little choice as a seemingly small moment in a great big war changed the whole thing. And change the future of our nation. You and I are living in the future, in the world that Joshua Chamberlain helped create. Why? Because it's always all for something. It's always all for something. There's no such thing as a small person or a small role even here at Mosaic. For those of you, for example, who who greet at the doors, thank you. You're huge here. I hear stories over and over of your kindness, of your warmth, especially when I do our connection card calls. I've lost track of how many times I've called someone and they say, oh man, I loved it there at Mosaic. And I'm thinking, I know what's coming next. You're going to say that you loved the worship or man, that lead pastor guy, right? That was an amazing message. You know, but no, I hear, man, I love the church. Everyone was so friendly and warm, especially your greeters. They followed up with me, remembered my name. It was great. Or our ushers, thank you for all you do. You prepare the Lord's table for us. You, you prepare the room week in, week out. You prioritize your uh, other, excuse me, other people's Sundays ahead of yours. And if you, uh, you're at the coffee bar, oh, you know how crucial you are. I mean, just try taking away someone's free latte. Or mocha, right? You, you, you'll sense your importance to the human race begin to grow, right? You've given people free, addictive, hot beverages in a great atmosphere, put smiles on faces. And I thank you because you're helping keep people awake in theory. Maybe you're back now. All right. Or maybe you're one of the 140 or so folks who, who are a volunteer in MKIDS. You are a part of the single largest volunteer force in this church. Thank you for doing family ministry here because you're not just loving and serving those to whom Jesus said the kingdom belonged. You're serving moms and dads. Maybe even saving a marriage that day, right? Or maybe you serve youth or our teens and you, you love them all in the midst of their changes and funky culture and a strangeness and challenging backgrounds. Thank you. Uh, and thank you if you're on the worship team, right? I mean, everybody sees them right there on the stage. But what you don't see is them getting here at 7 a.m. Every Sunday or practicing at home during the week after the kids go to bed when they get home from work. To serve you on Sunday. See, there's no such thing as a small role. It's always all for something. And there's no such thing as a small Sunday or a small community group meeting. As far as I'm concerned, they're all epic. You say, of course you do. You're the pastor, right? I mean, pastors are weird like that. 
you're right, I am weird, right? I love you, don't I? Oh, yeah. I love Jesus, and I love his church, full of messy and beautiful and valuable and talented people. I think they're all amazing. And by the way, show me a pastor who doesn't think that, and that every Sunday is the most important day of his life, and I'll show you someone who shouldn't be doing the job. Let me tell you why Sundays are so important. First, for you parents out there, hear this. There is no guarantee that if your family, if your kids are in church regularly, they will grow up to serve God. No guarantee. Multiple other factors involved. The kind of church atmosphere that's there, right? I mean, is the church perpetually unstable, mean-spirited, legalistic? Those things push children away from God. But your parenting is a crucial factor, right? I mean, is the only time that your kids see you engage your faith? Is, that, is it when you're here? Or, or do you actually pray and devote time to growing their relationship with God at home? Do you, do you model a life of sacrifice and humility? Spend time with them. Those things are crucial. But, 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 if the statistics are true, which is that roughly 90% of children give their lives to Christ by the age of 21, let me tell you when the greatest window of opportunity to impact their lives is. It's right now. It's right now. And if another statistic is true, which is that the average American Christian is in church only once a month, that means that over the course of a year, A child in a family who attends once a month is exposed to the gospel, the person of Jesus, about 12 hours out of the whole year. One half of one day out of 365. And if you're, if that's that's you, that's typically the spiritual habits of those churchgoers, again, if the surveys are true, aren't that much different than the typical American. Three to five hours of television a day, minimal Bible reading, prayer in the home, which means two things. That's you. Church involvement is limited to about once a month. It means 364 and a half days of the year. A child's no exposure to Christianity. And 52 full days a year or more are spent watching television during the most spiritually crucial stage they'll ever have. Now again, no guarantee a child will grow up to serve Jesus because you raised them in a church. But there's a far higher likelihood they won't if they aren't, you see. Single people, you need this even more than married people because odds are, single folks, you've got even less accountability. Fewer people peeking into your life if you're single than if you have a family, right? Now, a married person, you can fake a walk with God up to a point and with your kids up to a certain age. But again, you got multiple kids that grow. It's far harder to fake it. When you got little people asking, Daddy, what's this song about? Daddy, are you going to see that movie? Daddy, do you get down low in the club like the lady in the song? Listen. If you're single, every person here who who is older, who's married, serving Jesus passionately, they'll tell you one of the greatest investments you can ever make. To prioritize your church family and to get to know other singles, not to scope out the church like it's a meat market, but to make great friendships. And who knows? Something may come out of it. It did for me. Thank you very much. You say, you're saying, why should I be here every week, right? I mean, nobody needs me here. Well, of course, nobody needs you if you're never here, right? I mean, it's a, it's a convenient little cycle. No one knows me. No one needs me. Break the cycle, right? Choose to make people in a way dependent on you 
You don't have to say that again. Listen, everything in our culture, it pushes you away from this, right? It just, it didn't used to take resistance to be a faithful part of a church. It does now. Everybody schedules stuff on Sundays. Didn't used to. If you're wondering why there's so many other commitments, requests, just because that's what comes to you now. And by the way, you've always got a choice. You've always got a choice. And parents, let me exhort you, don't allow your kids' sports schedules to be the driving plumb line of your home. Don't do it. I mean, kids, sports make a terrible God. A terrible God. It almost crushed me. God delivered me, thank God, through that. The, the point is, the day is here. It's arrived now, if you didn't know it before. We're being part of a church takes active resistance against a larger culture. See, the little things, they're big things. It's always all for something, prioritizing your time here, your community group, making disciples. It's crucial for spiritual success. Therefore, number three, finally, let's be a church with a voice. About a century ago, there was a group of missionaries known as one-way missionaries. They they, they purchased one-way tickets, single tickets to the mission field, didn't buy a return ticket. And instead of suitcases, they packed all their earthly belongings in a coffin, which they took with them. When they sailed away, they said goodbye to everything, everyone they knew. They knew they never return. They had their coffin packed, see. A.W. Milne, a man by the name of that, was one of the missionaries. He sailed for an island in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters on that island had killed every single Christian who had ever gone there before. Here's the thing, though. He didn't fear for his life. He went anyway. He had already died to himself. See, he had packed his coffin. Miraculously, God spared him, and person after person on that island came to know Jesus. For 35 years, he lived among that tribe, and he loved him. And when he died, the members of the tribe buried him in the center of the village and inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. He said, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Oh, I love that. I love that. Let me ask you, church. Let me ask you, friend. When, when did we start believing, if you have, that God just wants to send us to safe spaces, right? Safe places where there's no fear, right? You know, there's no risk uh, of being hurt, right? Nothing to fear. Now, I'm not talking uh, about a serially abusive relationship. No, I'm talking about a mission in life that God's called us to. When did we start thinking That servant God was supposed to be smooth, right? That church was supposed to be smooth and bump-free. And our culture is supposed to love us. Let me tell you, if they put Jesus to death, they might not like you. Even as nice as you are, right? Jesus didn't die to make us safe, right? He died to make us hear this dangerous in a way, right? dangerous to darkness, dangerous to hate, to evil, to racism, to poverty, right? And I want to be a part of something that takes risks, that tries something new, isn't afraid of the future. It's part of the reason we do a number of things, including, as you heard, our TGA, which stands for the gospel and where we've been talking about race and culture and diversity. Why? Well, because it's a big deal. And God hates racism. And so do we. And do you understand that just being a part of a church like this, in a small way, combats and confronts racism? It's dangerous to it. Now, we have to go beyond sitting in a room, and we have in part with our TGA efforts, and people said, man, you're crazy to try. One pastor of a large church, when I told him what we were doing, he looked at me, and he said, good luck. (laughs) But listen... 
Maybe he doesn't know what we know, which is that true diversity is always a byproduct of something bigger, which is good theology and focus on a bigger mission. See, the New Testament church was diverse because they recognized that Jesus loved all. All were made in his image. He had died for them all and called them all on a mission of redemption together. And next in June, in our next TGA, we're going to take a look. Yes, you heard right. At politics in an election year. My God, we must be crazy, right? I don't care. I want to be a part of something that matters, that changes lives. And no one's changed history by playing it safe. Not Savea Flood, not Joshua Chamberlain, not A.W. Mill, not Job. Neither will you. And maybe you can't go around the world like them. That's okay. You can go on one, on one of the many short-term mission trips that we offer. If you don't have a, uh, we don't have one you want to go on, go on one of your own. That's great. Invent your own. Great, I guess. Maybe we'll talk, talk about that first, right? But if you've never been on a trip, you need to go. Uh, a mentor of mine said, uh, to be a Christian, you need two documents. You know, Bible and a passport. Bible and a passport. I think he's got a point. Or you could go serve the homeless with our Kai Street team. These are some of the most amazing Christians I've ever met. If you go out with them, I promise you're going to feel like a million bucks. Going out on Kai Street, it's like going to Christian Disneyland. It's the happiest place at Mosaic. You know why? Because there isn't a shred of selfishness there. Every single person who goes, goes to serve people who cannot help them in return. You go to only give, only to feed, only to love. It is more blessed, that word means happy, more blessed to give than to receive. And you feel better after being on the streets for three hours. Than when you showed up. And this fall, we're going to help spearhead something incredible with a handful of other churches in Austin called the Love Where You Live Service Day. We're going to ask you, actually, the last weekend of October, if you got plans now, you should totally break them and be a part of what thousands of other Christians are going to be a part of, serving and volunteering in the city to help in service projects all over, to let the city of Austin know we are for them, we love the city, we're believing for its well-being, and we'll give you more information as it goes. But before we get there, starting in June next month, we're going to be doing a four-week series called Love Where You Live. Maybe you've seen some of the stuff around town, billboards and such, joining many other churches in, yes, again, challenging you to get to to know your neighbors made in the image of God, who God has put you next to that they might come to know him and serve them perhaps. And we'll help you with that as well. And listen, one of the main ways forward for the church in the 21st century is through service. It's through service. Jesus himself said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life. We're not called to play it safe. We're called to go where into all the world. And make disciples, love our neighbor as ourselves, and that's going to take some risk. For some of you, that may mean some risk in your finances, right? You're going to have to begin giving faithfully to God. And if you don't want to give here, don't give here. Find some place where you can. On one hand, we don't need your money. And if God wanted your money, he could take it. Be good. God will provide for us. He has provided for us. Everything we have is already paid for by the folks who are here giving anyway. On the other hand, we do need your money because we got a big dream to somehow have something so significant and affect so many people's lives and have something not just to say but to show when it comes to being a disciple-making, multi-generational, multi-racial faith community that the city's going to take notice. And to do that, it's going to take you being here. 
You being involved, you serving, you giving, you praying, and maybe one day, should God allow, you going on a church plan that God opens the door for us to do. So musicians, if you're here, let's write some songs, huh? Business people, start some new businesses. Students, change UT. Educators, man, reach that hard-to-reach student. Stay-at-home parents, homeschooling folks. Let's shape the next generation of songwriters, missionaries, business people, politicians. When did Christianity equate with safety? Not a lot about safety, promise to those who follow Jesus. But you know what is? A crown. A crown. A crown. You can keep your safety. I'll take a crown. So I can cast it back at the feet of my Savior one day anyway. It's never all for something. It's always, never all for nothing, always all for something. Let's be a church with a voice. And I'm not talking about being a church known for screaming at everything we don't like on the evening news. I'm talking about influence through our lives, our character, our service, our sacrifice, through how much we love and give for Jesus. How can we do that? Through worship. Let's point to something bigger than ourselves through community, loving folks here outside these walls more than ourselves. And mission, we go and give to something bigger than ourselves. Never all for nothing, always all for what? Something. Let's be a church with a voice. Amen.